Americans are in overload mode. I could give several illustrations. I'm only going to give three illustrations of how overload is affecting our lives. One is in the area of choices. We are faced with choice overload. In 1978, you or I, if we had entered a supermarket, would be given approximately 12,000 different choices of items which could be purchased in that supermarket. In 13 years, that number had more than doubled to 25,000 pieces of material or merchandise which we could buy. Alvin Toffler, who over 40 years ago wrote the book Future Shock, he was a futurologist himself, made this statement about the future, and the future has come. He said, we will live in overchoice in the 21st century. And that's where we are today. We feel overload in the area of choices. Do you ever feel overloaded with so many choices? How many magazines do you get during this season in particular advertising their wares? It's just mind-boggling, isn't it? Here's another way that we suffer overload in the area of hurry. We have hurry overload. Carl Young, who was a psychoanalyst and quite well-known, had a lot of influence, made this statement. He said, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. Does hurry bedevil you? Do you feel like, I've got to get this done so I can do that? I've got to see this person so I can see the next person. And you're out of breath, just hurrying around? There is a Finnish proverb that goes like this. God did not create hurry. And that's so true. Perhaps you've noticed in the Bible how frequently we are commanded to wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. It has a lot to do with developing patience in our lives. So we are men and women who face hurry overload as well. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, perhaps you know that name. He was the great Russian dissident during the Cold War. He found himself a prisoner in the gulags in Russia. And in that position, he learned so much. He was not a believer in Christ Prior to going there, he developed cancer. And the doctor who performed surgery on him, who also was a prisoner there because he was a dissident, his dissidence had to do with his walk with Christ. And this doctor who treated Solzhenitsyn witnessed to him at a moment of great vulnerability in Solzhenitsyn's life. He gave his life to Christ. This is what he said about the 20th century in which he lived. He said that hurriedness and superficiality are the two great psychic diseases of the 20th century. Are you overloaded in the area of hurry in your life? Here's the last illustration I'll give. What about information overload? Are you bogged down or burdened by information overload? If you and I were to buy a copy of the New York Times magazine, today's edition. We would hold in our hands more information than the educated Britisher would have been familiarized with in an entire lifetime who lived in the 17th century. 
just four centuries ago. In one purchase, you'd have more information. We are in information overload. When overload exceeds the power a person has to deal with it mentally and physically and psychologically, of course, what happens is that person experiences burnout. Burnout is something that many of you are familiar with. This morning we're going to look at what the Bible says about burnout. Turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read the first seven verses, focusing primarily on verses 4 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace... Mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity. And the word timidity could equally be well translated by fear. So I'm going to substitute the word fear for timidity. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self Discipline. Now, Timothy's problems are different from ours to a certain degree. But what we see when we study the figures in Scripture, they are painted warts and all. They are not airbrushed by the writers of the Bible as if to cover their lives up and not expose them in the areas of their weakness. That's not an invitation for you and me to fall into a state of sin by any means, but what it does show us that God doesn't give up on people when they find themselves burned out, spiritually particularly. Word had obviously reached the Apostle Paul about the one whom he calls my dear son in the introduction of this letter, Timothy. And he had heard about the struggles that he was having. And so what we want to begin looking at in this passage of Scripture is what were the reasons for his burnout and see if we can't draw some parallels to our lives. So we'll look at the reasons for the burnout. The first reason had to do with his assignment. Our assignments oftentimes cause us to have spiritual burnout, mental and physical Burnout as well. What was this man's assignment? Well, let me invite you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and following. And then we'll look at a portion of verse 18. 1 Timothy 1, 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, 
stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Now, does this strike you as instructive or maybe something that draws a question to your mind? Why did Paul have to urge Timothy to stay there in Ephesus when he left to Macedonia, where he established the church of Philippi? Why was that the case? Well, it could be because of the strong attachment he had to Paul. After all, Paul was his father in the faith. And he had a close link to him. And he had a marvelous example of a mentor in Paul. And all of a sudden, Paul is pulling away. And it must have chilled his soul to see his mentor go. Because he knew what kind of people made up that new church. Many were genuine believers, but he also sensed that he was going to face off with people like Paul tells him to face off with, these false teachers. Look at verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. What we're going to see in a moment is this. Not only was Timothy's assignment daunting, and fear-producing because of what he knew it involved. But also, his temperament lent itself to being very sensitive. Sensitive to criticism. Sensitive to what other people thought about him. Sensitive in the area of showing strength to people instead of fear, which was his natural response. In fact, look at the last verse that we looked at this morning, verse 7. Notice the way Paul speaks. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Why do you think he brought that up in a letter, a personal letter, to his dear son in the faith? Because he knew he was by nature one given to fear. Now, it's instructive and very important that we take note of all the words in Scripture. And in the beginning of verse 7, what do we read? Paul writes, God has not given us, including Himself. There are just two people involved. The writer, Paul, and the receiver, Timothy. Is there any evidence in the Bible that Paul was ever afraid? In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and corresponding with them, He says, when I came to you, I did not come with wise and persuasive words, but I came with fear and trembling. Here he is, this great apostle standing before the people of Corinth. He was preaching the gospel and he was shaking like a leaf. Can you imagine? And Timothy would remember that because Timothy was with him. In the book of Acts chapter 18, which records Paul's ministry there, In Corinth, he was ready to pack his bag and leave. Timothy, part of his group, would have likewise been ready to pack his bag and leave because he would have followed his leader. But all of a sudden, Jesus came to the great apostle in a vision by night. And he said, stop being afraid. Keep on speaking. Never start being silent. For I am with you, 
and no man will attack you. No person will harm you because I have many people in this city. Your work is not over here, Paul, is what Jesus said to this great man. He was afraid. Timothy had seen that. It's important that when we seek to mentor people or lead people, that we don't leave the false impression that we never have any kind of fear. Now, if you don't have fear, praise the Lord. But I would imagine you're going to find your place someday in a place of outright fear. And just like the Apostle Paul, he overcame his fears based upon what Christ said to him. And now he's reminding this dear brother. He's reminding him of that instance. As I think about Timothy, I was privileged to be the Timothy of a dear man of God. A tremendous example to me. I was his Timothy. He was like a Paul. I'm much more like Timothy in temperament and other things as well. But when I think about that, I think about how probably next to my mother and father, the person I did not want to disappoint was Herb Hodges, my mentor. It just was not something I wanted to do. And here, Timothy had done things which were contrary to what he had been taught by his mentor. But do you see the tenderness of the Apostle Paul here in the way he relates to his son in the faith? He is our role model as we enter into relationship with others in hopes of introducing them to Christ and then helping them to come along not hammering them when they do what's wrong, speaking to them the truth, but knowing that there is work that God has left to be done through their lives. And we need to understand this is a life of grace and mercy. It's a life of discipline, for sure. Faithful of the wounds of a friend, the Scripture says. We who have leadership in others' lives, we have to speak the truth, but we always do it in love. When we speak the truth, we don't decimate people. We don't denigrate people. We reach out to them in the love of Christ and minister to them. His assignment caused burnout. Also, I've already mentioned this, his temperament. Look at verse in 2 Timothy again. Look at verse 4. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Am I to understand from that statement that Paul enjoyed seeing his dear son in the faith cry? I don't think so. The thing that brought joy to him is his ability to see him personally. He had missed him and he wanted to see him. He wanted to deal with him on the level that he needed to be dealt with, confronting him in a healthy way and affirming him as his son in the faith, and more importantly, confirming that he was a child of God. And he wanted to do that. So the tears are an indication on the part of Timothy that he had a sensitive side, didn't he? He did. Did the Apostle Paul ever cry? you know him to weep at times? Yeah? Just read the Bible. Paul, he was not a whiny sort, but he had his moments too when he was afraid and he wept about things. For sure he did. 
Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 for a moment. Keeping your place there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at four verses here that have a bearing on this whole discussion today. Verse 8 of 16 of 1 Corinthians says, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. That's where Paul told Timothy to remain and face off with those opponents. And then look what verse 10 says. If Timothy comes to you, Corinthians, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Doesn't that tell you something about Timothy? See to it that he has nothing to fear. Here's his mentor trying to protect him and trying to let those people know really who they have coming to them. Verse 11, No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. So we see reasons for burnout. Two, what are they? Your assignment and your temperament. Now, let me ask you about your assignment. What is your assignment? You're not an apostle. There are no more apostles. You are not, in most cases, a pastor. Maybe God's leading you in that direction. And if He is, you need to follow Him and trust Him for that. It's a fear-producing thing to undertake, by the way. And it takes this message to help people do that. But do you not know, if you are a follower of Christ, do you not know that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, and you are to glorify God in your body? Do you know every believer is part of a royal priesthood? Did you ever think of yourself as a priest or a priestess? Well, if you know Jesus Christ and you have thought that way, you have thought wrongly. You are a part of a kingdom of priests is the way that John writes about it in the book of Revelation chapter 1. We, all of us, have been given gifts for the purpose of serving the church and glorifying the Lord. And God wants to use you. So you have an assignment wherever you go, as do I, to be salt and to be light, to preserve and to enlighten people about their need for Jesus to show Christ in our lives and then to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us as to why we have hope when there doesn't seem to be any reason for you and me to have hope. Do you have an assignment? Probably the vast majority of us here today have children. If you have an assignment to be a parent, has that ever created frustration in your life? Have you burned out? Some people have burned out on parenting are here today. I've been a parent for 40 years. And I'm still a parent. It's going to keep going. I've derived great joy from being a parent. I can't tell you how much joy 
it has brought me to be a parent. But if there have been times when I, I thought, man, I'm on the brink. I'm on the brink of burnout here. But by God's grace, I've been able to keep that towel in my hand, you know, and not pop them too much with it. <laughs> After all, they are adults, you know what I mean? I love them. I love my son. I love his wife. I love their children, my grandchildren. I love my daughter. I love them. But sometimes it gets hard, doesn't it? There's no greater ministry that you have than in your home. If you're married to your wife, if you're married to your husband, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for the church. Wives, submit to and respect your husband as the church is to Christ. If people in marriage would just do that on both sides of the equation, we'd have a little slice of heaven on earth. Therein lies an answer to some of the problems that you may be facing in your home. You may be doing what you're supposed to do, and your spouse is not. You can't do anything about him or her, but you sure can submit yourself to the Lord and be the kind of man or woman the Lord has you to be. If you have a sensitive temperament, good news. We're going to see in just a moment that we have not been given the spirit of fear. And that's talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that. Let's go on and look at the recovery from burnout. What is the way we can recover from burnout? Well, there are three broad categories, the first of which is this. We need to review our faith journey. That's what Paul helped this young man, Timothy, do. He says in verse 5, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Here again, all the words in Scripture are critically important. He said, I'm persuaded. He reviewed what he knew about Timothy when he learned of how Timothy was cowering. He was becoming so afraid and timid of man and not really trusting God. But he began to think back upon the years which they had spent together. And he had known him to be a sincere man. His faith was real to the core. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, I'm going to send my son in the faith, Timothy, Paul did. I'm going to send him to you, and he will remind you of my way in Christ, my life in Christ, my way of following Christ. He will remind you of that. And that's saying a lot, isn't it? For him to say that. And what do we know about Paul? What was his way of life? Well, very simply, he says, for me to live is Christ. He believed that. He had seen it. He had been with Timothy day in, day out, night in and night out. They were traveling companions. They worked together for the gospel. Then in Philippians, which by the way, Timothy helped co-write. When that epistle is introduced to the Philippian church, this is the way it begins. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons 
grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he says in the second chapter. He says, I'm asking the Lord, and by the Lord's mercy, I'm going to send to you Timothy. And he is like no other spiritual son I have. Because he takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He's not like the rest. They are primarily concerned with their own interests. But Timothy is different. And you know that he has proved himself to be faithful. Because as a son with his father, he has served with him in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you know, as this man... Timothy thought back over his life. He was called to go back to his time of salvation. Who led him to Christ? His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. From infancy, they were the ones who poured Scripture into him. Then Paul came along. His father was not a believer. I'm talking about Timothy when I say that. His father was an out-and-out pagan man. And Timothy probably longed for a father. And then God sent him a father in the person of Paul. And so we see this man who is listening to, in effect, his father. And he's so encouraged. The Apostle Paul had many gifts. He had a gift of teaching. He also, I'm sure, had a gift of exhortation. And he knew the right words to say at the right time, depending on the circumstance that the person to whom he was speaking found himself or herself in. Just the right word. He knew exactly what Timothy needed. Because he knew his temperament. Do you know a person who is by nature melancholy and sensitive like he was, Timothy, doesn't need a lot of upbraiding. Doesn't need bawling out. Because he or she, knowing Christ, lives with his or her failure and it haunts him or her. What that person needs is exactly what Paul gave Timothy here. He came to him and he spoke words of tenderness. He spoke the truth to him, but he spoke words of tenderness to his dear son in the faith. He said, review your faith journey, my son. That's what he's really saying. He told him, I know you're sincere in your faith and your faith is a living faith. It's not something that lived for a while and then in this time of burnout, it's gone. It's there It's not in full-blown measure, but it's there. So, son, remember, your sincere faith, it's a living faith. And then this is what he would have said to him when he finally saw him face to face, I'm sure of it. He would have said what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. When Jesus says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Do you remember when you received Jesus? Anybody here besides me remember when I, I received when I, Jesus came into my life? Do you remember it? Have you fallen from that height? Anybody? Maybe you progressed a while and then you slowly failed to pay attention to your spiritual life. And before you knew it, you were way away from the Lord. The Word of God says, Jesus says, remember the height from which you are fallen. Not to make you feel any worse than you do when you begin to really take an honest look at your place in your pilgrimage, but to take hope from that and know that you are being called to be restored 
to the Lord. Restored in a significant way to Jesus. So we see this admonition to Timothy from his spiritual father Paul. Review your faith journey. Here's the second thing. Rekindle your fire. Let's look at verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Do you get the picture? If you've camped much, you probably know the picture. I've never camped too much, but I was raised by grandparents on both sides of my family, neither of whom had central air or heat in their houses. The only form of heat they had was wood or coal being burned. In my grandfather Wood's house, there was a pot-bellied stove in two of the rooms in that small country house in West Tennessee. And what would happen in the morning, someone got up early and would go to those stoves and open the grate and then they would look in there and they'd take a poker and begin to poke around. Sometimes there were live embers still visible, but sometimes there weren't. But they would poke around in hopes that they would find a live coal. They would then fan it into flame. They would add kindling to it. Not only would they fan it into flame, but they would put fuel in it. At my grandfather Johnson's house, they had fireplaces in prominent spaces in the home. And the same was true there. You'd have to rekindle the flame the next morning, wouldn't you? You have any experience like that as a camper? You do? Well, that's what God is telling Timothy to do through his mentor. Fan into flame the gift that is, he didn't say was in you. What does he say? Which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The embers may have grown cold in your heart as far as the Lord is concerned. But what God said to This man, Timothy, through Paul, he's saying to you and me today, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Do you know what that gift is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. When we receive Christ, obviously, Jesus didn't put His body down inside of of ours. Otherwise, He'd be limited to one human person again. But He is not only available, He is living in us. He lives in us. One of the figures of speech the Bible uses for the Holy Spirit is fire. He is fire. He gives light. He gives warmth. He gives direction. He gives protection. He gives healing. These are aspects of the Holy Spirit of God. And they are represented in this symbol of fire. Fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. The Holy Spirit is God. Just as much God as God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. He is God. He is the shy member of the Trinity, however. He never pushes Himself into the limelight. He always pushes Jesus in, though. One of His responsibilities, according to Jesus in John fifteen twenty six, is that He bears witness to Jesus. He's in the background. The Holy Spirit's the one who is... Forerunning for Christ. He's putting a witness in the hearts of people that there is a God. There must be a God. I know there's a God, but I just don't know His name. And then all of a sudden, the person who is on that quest, which is instigated by the Spirit of God Himself, 
finds that that person that he needs is Jesus Christ or she needs is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit. If we're going to rekindle the flame in our lives that has grown dim, if we have suppressed the Holy Spirit, we have marginalized the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, Y'all... Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was from the South. We know that. That's what it says, literally. Y'all. You'll have to trust me. In the Greek, it's y'all. Y'all be filled with the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit. All of you be filled. The word filled means to be controlled by. When you see the way in which the Word is used in the New Testament over and over again, it's to be controlled by. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what that amounts to simply is submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit of God. Giving Him full control of your life. Another way of saying the same thing is let Christ be set apart as Lord in your life. He is the unquestioned ruler of your life. And when you do that, the result is you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are fanning into flame the gift of God which was given to you. You know who gave the Holy Spirit to us? Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper just like me. And He will be with you ever, forever. And I'm speaking, Jesus said, of the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold Him or see Him. But you know Him. Because He is with you. He abides with you and He will be in you. He was not in them yet because Pentecost had not occurred. Jesus had not gone back to heaven and ascended and the Holy Spirit had not come. But the Holy Spirit is the gift of God the Father at the request of Jesus the Son so that we will not be left alone as orphans. He is with us. And He's not simply with us. He is in us. What an amazing truth. What a liberating truth. Is Jesus in your life? Can you say today that you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God? Do you have a sincere faith? Do you have a living faith? Or is it just sort of an off-again, on-again kind of faith? Well, understand that this is the normal Christian life. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not some sort of deluxe special edition of Christianity. It is the norm. It's what God wants for you and me. And we need to respond to the Lord in that way. And then notice in verse 7, the three descriptive words which are used of the Holy Spirit. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power. Let's pause just a moment. Was Timothy in need of power as he faced a huge assignment? Was he? I remember of another man who was cowering in the face of an often awesome assignment. It was in the 6th century B.C. It was in Jerusalem. His name was Zerubbabel, who was the de facto king of Judah at the time. He was not actually, but he was the designated leader. And he was faced with this awesome responsibility. As he went back to Jerusalem, it was his job to see that the temple of God, the most sacred place on earth, was to be rebuilt. It had been totally decimated by the Babylonians. When he got there, he was paralyzed by what he saw. 
He saw a heap of rubble. It was like a mountain of crushed stones where the temple had been. And then he needed a word from the Lord and the prophet Zechariah comes to him. It's recorded in the fourth chapter of Zechariah. And this is what God says through the prophet. He says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And you will take the top stone and you'll place it where it belongs when you finish the rebuilding of the temple. You're going to take the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, that was a vision from the Lord, wasn't it? But let me pause just a moment and tell you actually what was being said. Not by might. It's a word which was used to describe the power of personality and individual personality, a charismatic personality. Aren't we all drawn to charismatic personalities? We want to be around somebody who livens the place up, somebody who enters the room and the whole place lights up. Timothy was not such a person. The Apostle Paul probably was not either. Maybe a little more than Timothy. But he was not much to look at. He was hard to listen to. That's not my words. That's what he said. But God uses those things which are foolish to the world. Those things which are weak to the world. For what purpose? So that God will be glorified. There won't be any rivalry here between me and God or you and God or this charismatic figure. So Zerubbabel, I know you don't think you can do it. And you're right. You can't do it by yourself on the basis of your charisma. He may have been charismatic. But when he saw what lay before him, it just froze him in his steps. Not by power. The word power chosen there was a word which was used to describe an army in biblical times. The collective power of a group of people. So, Zerubbabel probably thought, I'm going to get a a real good support system built around me, and then we're going to do it. The Lord said, no. It's by my Spirit. That's the way you get it done. Whatever it is, whatever's causing you trouble, whatever your assignment is, whatever your temperament is, whatever it is, it's not by might, not by power. It's by the Spirit of God. And that thing that looks monumental to you, you don't think there's any way you can ever work your way through it, whatever form it may take. You know what it is. The Lord can do it. The Holy Spirit will do it if you trust Him to do it. And you must if you're going to find a place of victory over burnout in your life. The spirit of power, the spirit of love. Now, if I had that kind of power, if I'm Timothy and I'm thinking about this, saying, hey, I've got the power. It's not just power on paper, it's real power because the spirit lives in me. I'm going to be like a Mack truck running over all those false teachers. I'm just going to flatten them. They've been so mean to me. They've been so rude to our people here. They have tried to lead them astray. They've taken advantage of weak-willed women going into their homes, worming their way is the way Paul speaks of it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm just going to let them have it. But look what God says. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, 
Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Wow, that's a far cry from steamrolling people, isn't it? That's love. What does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's the kind of love that is ours in the Holy Spirit, the top of the list of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one? Love. That's it. Love. God's love. Here's the third thing. First of all, He's a Spirit of power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the world. He gives us power, Jesus does, by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who applies power in our lives. What about love? The Bible says in the book of Romans Chapter 5, verse 5, says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you know, you may say, I'm just not a loving person. None of us can love the way we're supposed to love in our own strength. But the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And what has God done? He's poured out His love in our hearts through the Spirit of God. Terrific. Here's the third thing. The spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of self-control or self-discipline. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You lack self-control in some area of your life? Well, guess what? There's one answer to it. And a lack of self-control can lead to disaster. It would in an antiquated city that would have been thought of in the mind of Solomon when he wrote that proverb. It's like a city broken into and left without walls. People would either be dead or defeated, right? Dead or enslaved. Some of you are enslaved by sin. You can't get out. You don't see how you're going to get out. You can get out one way and one way only. And that's to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to be controlled by the Spirit of God, to give your heart and life lock, stock, and barrel to the control of the Holy Spirit. Fan into flame the gift that is in you, as Paul told Timothy. And you'll have self-control too. What is the last description of the fruit of the Spirit? It begins with love, and the last one, what is it? Self-control. Everything you and I need to live this life of following Christ is in the Holy Spirit. He's in us. We simply have to. And it's not simple because we have such strong wills. Our flesh is so opposed to the Holy Spirit in its total insanity to refuse to let God to take control. He's the God who created us. He knows the one who knows what we need. We give our lives to Him. And we will not be disappointed. Here's the last thing. Here's the first two things. What are they? Recovery from burnout. Review your faith journey. Have you got that? Here's the second thing. Rekindle your fire. Do you understand that? Let's look at the last thing. And it's this. That we are to reorder our priorities. Going back to what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, how does He begin when He really begins to talk to them and confront them in their sin. 
And by the way, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, those whom I love, I discipline. If you're not getting disciplined by the Lord when you get off base and you let the fire burn down in your life, then you're not a Christian. I'm sorry. The Bible says that. And read Hebrews chapter 12. It's very clear. One of the things that bonifies you as a Christian is that when you sin, the Lord lets you know it. And He does it for a reason. But this is what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. You remember it. He said, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, what did He said just before that about the church at Ephesus? This is what He has said about the church at Ephesus. He said, you're the most hardworking church. You are the most doctrinally sound church. They were doing all kinds of religious activities and they were quick to sort of ferret out the false teacher, the Nicolaitans, to ferret them out. And they couldn't give any place to false teaching, false doctrine, and slackers didn't have a place in the church. But he says, I have this against you. I hold it against you. You have forsaken your first love. What was their first love? It was not a what, it was a he. Jesus was their first love. Do you remember when you received Christ? Did you love Jesus? Sure you did. If you really received Him, you loved Him. You wanted to talk about Him. You wanted to tell other people about Him. I was in the second grade when I received Jesus, and the first person I wanted to see on the Monday after I received Jesus was my second grade teacher, Mrs. Tedder. I loved her. And I came up to her and I told her, Mrs. Tedder, I'm going to get baptized because I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And she was so kind. I don't know if she knew the Lord. But I was witnessing and didn't even know what I was doing. You love Jesus, right? But what happened to these people? They had forsaken their first love. Their priorities got out of whack, didn't they? Because they let the fire die down. Trying to run around. That's what was happening to Timothy, I would imagine. He was trying to keep everybody happy in the church there and do this and do that and the other. And he forsook his first love. And you know what happens when you have Jesus as your first love? Jesus says, and the Bible says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you know what his commandment is in that context? In John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Reorder your priorities. Here are three Suggestions from Scripture that will help you and me do that. Let's look at them. The first one is train yourself. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says train yourself to be godly. You need to be about it. The word is the word of the gym. In fact, our word gymnasium comes directly from the verb which is translated train. Gymnasio is what the word is. So we're to be that kind of people. We train ourselves. Some of you have already been to the gym today. You don't miss a day. You're up at 5 o'clock and you're there. You're training, aren't you? Well, the Bible says physical training is of some value. But spiritual training is of value that far exceeds physical training. Because it's not only good for this life, it's good for the life to come. Everybody's body in here is going to wear out. 
I hate to tell some of you younger people that. I don't wish it on you, but it's going to happen if you live long enough. It's going to quit cooperating with you. Your mind's going to tell it to do stuff you can't do anymore. Well, train yourself to be godly. And here's how you train yourself. If you'll do this one thing, you will not let the flame go cold in your life. You won't quench the Holy Spirit of God. In the book of Jeremiah 23:29, God asks this question. He says, Is not my word like fire? And Jeremiah had said earlier in the 15th chapter, he says, Your word I did find and I ate it and it was delicious to me. It was like honey. It was sweet to me. That's what he said. So, here's what you do. If you will go to the Word of God and read it, not just hunting and pecking around, but read it and ask God to speak to you, He will fill your heart with the words of Christ And you will have the mind of Christ and you will be filled with the Spirit. That's what the Word says. Here's the second thing. Train others. 2 Timothy 2.2 The things which you've heard from me in the presence of faithful men in in, in my presence and those people who are with you are faithful and trust to them. So we're to find others to train. To help them to grow. Just like Paul found Timothy. We're to do that. And 4.5 says, do the work of an evangelist. Look, if we're not sharing Christ with people and you say, hey, I can't preach in front of a bunch of people. That's not what it says. It's, can you talk one-to-one to somebody? Do you ever have a, a conversation with someone just you and him or her? Well, you can be an evangelist. The Holy Spirit's in you. And He bears witness to Christ. And as you grow in the Lord, you, what you will find, the thing that will keep you from burning out, I believe... Second only to reading the Word of God is sharing Christ with somebody. It keeps you sharp spiritually. So, think about it. Here's the third thing. Train with others. Some of you have a training partner. You wouldn't get up at 5 o'clock to go work out if there was not a partner there. And that's good. We need somebody to hold us accountable, don't we? Train with others. 2 Timothy 2.22 Paul tells Timothy, find people who are like-minded who also call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Look, look around you. If you don't know enough people to identify such people, find someone here or someone who is a believer in Christ and say, hey, can we pursue Christ together? Can we hold each other accountable? And God will lead you to such a person if you have a heart for that. God will do it. Could be your wife, could be your husband, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. But find that person who cares enough about you and about the Lord to be your partner. The Christian life is not to be lived alone. That's obvious from the many one another commands. It's about others, the Christian life is. Some of you have a strength coach, it's a new phenomenon in. Team sports, new relatively speaking, probably 20, 25 years. The strength coach now on a football team or a basketball team, baseball team is perhaps as important as any other coach. You know we have a strength coach. You know who he is, don't you? Jesus is our strength coach. And he says, Paul says, you can do all things I can through Christ who gives me strength. Do you have him as your coach? He wants to coach you up. 
He wants you to come to Him every day just as regularly as you might go to the gym to work out physically. And let your workout with the Lord be priority. If you want to avoid burnout, that's what you will do. Let me finish with this. You may be here today and you have never been filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to say it's something that I can tell you in five minutes and you're done, man. You got it. But everybody needs a starting point in this regard. And Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, had this analogy. He said, our Christian lives should be like breathing physically. We exhale carbon dioxide so that we can inhale oxygen, which is vital to life. He said, the exhaling process spiritually is confessing and repenting of your sin. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Here's the big sin. It would include specific confessions. But the big sin is often not addressed. It's unbelief. And unbelief is seen when we don't submit ourselves to the Lord. Remember, that's what being controlled by the Holy Spirit is. Submitted to the Lord. Are you submitted to the Lord? Can you say without a doubt, I have submitted my life to the Lord? It's a step of faith, not a feeling. A step of faith. And when you do that, you're exhaling. And then you're inhaling the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your head? Father, we thank You for this instruction on how to overcome burnout from the Word of God. We thank You, Holy Spirit, for wanting to live in us. We thank You for taking up residence in us. And it's not for our benefit mainly, Lord. It's for Your glory. So I pray for the people who are here today who are not filled with the Spirit, all of us really, Lord. We want to individually and collectively say, Lord, I'm exhaling. Lord, I confess my sin of unbelief. Lord, I pray that You would be kind enough to fill me with Your Spirit. Would You do that, Lord? By faith, I want to walk with You, Lord, trusting You. Give me victory, like You promised, over myself and over sin, and use me to glorify You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.